0: In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I discuss the definition of product market fit using inexpensive developers, when to quit, and more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 409. Welcome to Startups to the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it, I'm Rob. And I'm Mike. We're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we've made. So we this week, sir. Do you hear that? The silence behind you?
1: Yes. The kids went back to school. Oh my God, it's so awesome.
0: Yeah, it's nice <laughs> that they're like not in the house for yes. like seven hours of the day or eight hours of the day with bus time.
1: Yes, yes, it is there are certain cartoons that they watch that I, they could not end soon enough because <laughs> they've watched the same episodes over and over. And I'm just like, Oh, please let it stop. Totally.
0: Yeah. The, our kids go back next week. So I am uh, although Bo, oh, by the time this airs, they'll have gone back. But as of, as of the time we're recording, they're not back in school yet. So I'm definitely looking forward to that.
1: Yep. So what's up with you?
0: Well, I've been listening to a few books, as always, kind of have my Audible queue full at all times for when I get through all the podcast episodes for the week. And one of the recent ones I listened to is called Brotopia, and it's about kind of the Silicon Valley Boys Club. And I enjoyed it. It's by Emily Chang, and it really brings a lot of stuff to light. I I think it's, I'm very glad she wrote it, and it, it was... I wasn't surprised by a lot of it. I was surprised by parts of it, uh, you know, in a, in a bad way, just about stuff people, have, women have had to deal with in Silicon Valley. And uh, there was a small portion that I felt like, I mean, literally five, 10% of it. Where I was like, okay, I feel like you're taking this a little too far or like, this is a little over the top or this particular argument or example just feels like a little bit sensationalist. But all that to say, solid 80, 90% of it, it was like, oh my gosh, yeah, we really, things are beginning to change, but it's not nearly enough. So I, I appreciated that book. And I think it's something interesting to, to read or listen to if, you know, if that, that kind of stuff um, interests you and it, and it kind of should, I mean, I think it's something that, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion is something that everyone is, is thinking about these days or should be. Another book that I listened to that I, I didn't think I would like actually, but I'm a huge fan of Paul Simon and Simon and Garfunkel in particular and there's a new biography of him called Paul Simon the Life and i figured that anything before Simon and Garfunkel like his growing up and anything after Simon and Garfunkel wouldn't be that interesting to me but turns out it was well written it was fascinating the story and just the way he reinvents himself every album and the arduous painful process of being a maker and what he does is i loved it you know i love just hearing about creators and how much it's the struggle right it's the struggle of creating things and how hard that is so, anyways, highly recommended if if you're at all into you know Paul Simon or, or want to like the kind of the, the artist journey kind of biographies. And then the last one is just a fun fun diversion. Didn't think I would like a kind of buy. I buy a lot of books thinking like ah, I'm gonna I'm gonna go out on a limb here. You know, it's not typically what I love, but it's by David Spade and it's a, called A Polaroid Guy in a Snapchat World. And I'm not a David Spade fan in particular. I don't the only movies I ever saw him in were like Tommy boy where his, I think he was in two Chris Farley movies and Davis Fade was on Saturday night live in early nineties, I believe. So I have not followed him. I have like no connection to him, but man, this book was funny. You know, he's like, he just turned 50 years old and he just talks about kind of being like you know, he's been on five television shows and 24 movies. And so he's like kind of a, you know, he's a, not kind of, he's a famous person and just talks about life in LA and Instagram. And he talks just every day growing up and other things. And it's, it's funny. So I, I enjoy that if you're looking for kind of something off the beaten path. And, you know, it was a nice, it was something I could listen to that would take my mind off of, (laughs) off of work, which is something you've talked about a lot, right? How you read fiction to kind of give your mind a rest from it.
1: Yeah, very cool. I haven't read any of those um, three books, but I've I've run across Protopia before. At least I've seen mentions of it in a couple of different places. It's, it's interesting, but you know, as you said, like I wouldn't expect a lot of the things that are talked about in that to be necessarily surprising because you know, there's a lot of stuff that is coming out of uh, the Silicon Valley culture that is just kind of unacceptable to be perfectly honest about it.
0: Yeah, it's pretty over the top at times.
1: So, what are we talking about this week?
0: This week, we are answering some listener questions. We have one question that we'll kick it off with. It's about using inexpensive developers. And an anonymous listener wrote in, he said, I discovered some of your videos on YouTube and the principles that you teach, specifically the idea of an MVP, have turned my thinking upside down and got me really stoked. I'm a lead developer for a government contractor, and I have been for 12 years. I believe that good software cannot be pounded out by cheap labor. I've seen too many programmers not willing or able to separate concerns, dry code, do not repeat yourself, code and otherwise make unmaintainable convoluted messes. On the other hand, I need help for my on-the-side startup and cannot pay anywhere near so $100,000 a year for a good developer in the States. I'm considering trying cheap overseas labor, and I will attempt to review the code instead set a standard to keep the code base at an acceptable level of quality. So I have a couple questions. This this is good stuff because we often Mike we often get the questions of I'm non technical how do I find somebody how do I evaluate it? but this you know this person is technical and so this is a boat you and I have both been in so it's interesting right because back in between 2005 2010 I was very much in this boat and I know you've had folks working on both Autotrack and, and BlueTech so he has three questions the first one is have you tried this and do you have any lessons learned second question is I've heard you say, don't worry about scaling until you prove your market. Would you take that as far as hiring cheap developers to write unmaintainable code for your first iteration of the product, assuming the code actually works, of course? And so building kind of a crappy MVP and then rewriting it later. Yeah. And the third question is, how have you approached hiring developers? So we may not be able to in-depth answer all of these. We have talked about hiring developers in the past. And I actually just talked about it on the Quiet Light podcast in specific, where I went through five or 10 minutes of just that topic. So maybe let's send people over there, or they can search the back catalog because we have transcripts of every episode. If you go to startupsfortherestofus.com, type in hiring, you can grab some old episodes from iTunes and listen to that. So maybe we just tackle the first two in this episode. So the first one is, have we tried what he's suggesting, kind of hiring cheaper than $100,000 a year labor? And what are our lessons learned from that?
1: So yes, I have. And lessons learned is that your expectations for them should be lower than if you were paying more. And you can find developers as cheap as like five or $10 an hour. But they, you're going to get what you pay for. I found that when I went above $20 an hour, I started to get better developers. And you're able to get a wider variety of in-depth experience as well. So like people who, you know, like if you go to the lower levels, you'll find somebody who says, oh, I can do front-end code and I can do back-end code, but they can do neither one of them very good. Or they're really good at one and they're just terrible at the other. They can do it. They just are are not good. So you'll find that the code is completely unmaintainable and it's very difficult to work with, even if you lay out like, here's the entire process of exactly how to do everything. Like it's still just probably not going to work out very well. That said, like kind of leading into number two, not scaling until you prove market, would you take that as far as hiring cheap developers to write unmaintainable code for the first iteration of your product? That's a harder question to answer because it depends on how long it takes them to get there. The mistakes that they make are going to bite you, and there's two different ways. One is the whatever rewrite you have to go through, and the second is the goodwill that you're earning with your customers, because if you're going through and you're continually breaking things that used to work, they're going to get angry with you, and it's just going to make your life more difficult in terms of trying to build a business and build revenue, because they're going to leave and they're going to churn out because, like, oh, this product, it breaks every other minute or every other day, like whenever something new goes in, and it's just a, a complete mess. It's going to be hard to go that route. I would definitely, if you can afford it, hire slightly better developers, like pay more than you probably think that you can potentially afford, or at least that you thought you could afford, because it is going to be worth it. Like you were, you're not going to find that you're going to get a, you know, $15 or $20 an hour developer and they're going to be, and you can get two of them, and they will be just as effective as a single developer at like forty or fifty dollars an hour. You're better off going the better developer route, even though you're probably going to get less code because of the fact that they're going to do a better job at it. Now, obviously, like there's wide range of skills between people. Like some people may charge forty, and some people may charge eighty, and they could potentially be very similar in skill set. Not likely because people tend to know what their value is. But definitely at the lower levels, like everything's just a total crapshoot. Once you get into the middle of 40 to 60, $80 an hour, it changes quite a bit. Like there's a, I'll say an order of magnitude difference in capabilities of somebody who's below 20 versus above 30 or 40.
0: Yeah. His statement of I really believe the good software cannot be pounded out by cheap labor. It's like, yeah, th- don't be too dogmatic about that. Cause cheap is relative, right? When I was charging 125 an hour as a contractor, people would go to hire me and then say, well, I can hire someone for 50 and they're cheap. So is fifty dollars an hour cheap? You know, I mean, or is five dollars an hour cheap? I, I think it's keep in mind that like it's this is not absolute, and I like your point about, and I have found the same thing: five, ten dollars an hour, it's it's going to be a mess know that going in if you're going to build something like that um, with with $5, $10 an hour labor. I have found decent developers in the $15 to $25 an hour range, much like like you were saying. And the interesting part is they may be good developers, but they tend to have something else that leads them to only charge that much. Like they might have kind of a chaotic personal life or they might they might not be able to work as many hours as you need them to, or they might be just a little more sporadic on the hours than you want them to, or they might not be Detail or on, on other things, so you can find a good developer who's cheap. They probably there's probably something else they're not super reliable or something like that, and that's the thing to keep in mind is is it's all trade offs. I can think of twenty reasons why any startup that I'm going to start is going to fail, and even back you know in 2005 to 2010 when I was much more in the you know the same boat as the original question asker here. Yeah, I was taking risks and I hired, I had a bunch of people that were in the $15 an hour range and some of them were really good and some of them were terrible. And I just had to vet them. Um, I found PHP developers. I found ColdFusion developers. I found a classic ASP developer because I had a bunch of different code bases and I didn't have the bandwidth to do it. So can this work? Yes, it can, but it's not going to work the first time. And it's not going to magically, the best developer for $20 an hour is not going to magically drop in your lap. You're going to have to look and you're going to have to vet and you're going to have to Put in the work. So I'd say don't be too dogmatic about someone needs to make 100K a year in order to be a developer. That's not true. especially not true if you go around the world. But even in the U.S., you can find good side labor for people who are paying less than 100K a year, especially if you 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 hire a junior or mid-level and are able to train them up. That's a whole other story. But we did that with Drip. We took two developers right out of code school. So they literally had, I don't know, six weeks or two months of coding experience, and they had done a little on the side. And could they write great code from the start? No, but we had a bunch of safeguards in place. Derek did a lot of, of code reviews and he kept a close eye on the code base and the code base grew. It's very large now and it's still a very solid code base with a lot of test coverage. So yes, this is possible. The second question is, would you take it so far as hiring cheap developer to write unmaintainable code for your first iteration of a product? My answer is probably not. Personally, I wouldn't do that. I care too much about not having to rewrite the product, because once you start getting momentum and you start getting few k and MRR, the last thing I want to do is go back and then spend six months rewriting the thing. I've seen companies do it; it is agonizing. It is kills the founders, not literally, but it just it is so painful to do. And if I'm going to do it from the start, I would just tackle a smaller problem. And I would, uh, you know, try to tackle part of the MVP without software at all. You've heard us talk about this: use Excel spreadsheets, use email, use you know, there's a bunch of other interfaces. Use cheap kind of virtual assistants to do a bunch of groundwork. work. There are ways to do this without building software. As developers, we think software is the answer to everything, and in most cases, it is not. There are some when you need it to be. If you were building the next Google, yes, you need software, right? But I'd say in 80% of the, uh, the cases where someone says, I'm going to build my MVP, and they assume that means software, they're actually incorrect. And you can do a lot of things. You could sell a lot of people on an idea or on mockups or on the Excel email version of something without ever having to write a line of code. So that's, that's the thinking I'd be doing at this point.
1: Yeah, I was going to mention that as a kind of an add on for his second question was that, you know, the first iteration of the product doesn't necessarily need to be software because it's like, how far are you down the road of the validation process? And I think that once you're past validating it and you've decided to pull the trigger on it, do it the right way and hire the developers that you need, as opposed to the developers that you can just, just the ones that you can afford, like you need to get good developers in there doing it.
0: Yeah, and I'll even say I mean I've hacked things together myself. You know, I think of the what is now Founder Cafe, which is which is our online community for bootstrap software founders. You go to foundercafe.com to learn more about that. But the original version of that, it had a different name altogether it's called Micropreneur Academy. I was a software developer. I could have built an online learning platform. There weren't very many that were any good at that point. Moodle was in its early days. 2008, 2009, and I hacked it together. I hacked it together with WordPress and plugins and a theme and that was really it. And I hacked some PHP. It wasn't great, right? I mean, in the end, it, it had some technical debt, but it was years later and it had already been built up into a pretty nice business at that point. So I'm not saying I would build a SaaS app, build a SaaS app that way, but there are kind of workarounds that you can look at to, to make that happen. So thanks for the question, Anonymous. I hope that's helpful. Our next question comes from Dan at closersharing.com. He recorded an audio question, so he jumped to the front of the line. Now, it's a, it's a long question, but he gives a lot of background, and I appreciate it because oftentimes people will send short questions, and then we have a lot of questions in our mind about, well, they didn't give this detail or that. So it's a couple minutes here, but hang out, and then Mike and I will weigh in.
2: Hey guys, my name is Dan Webb from Closer Sharing. And before I get to my question, I just want to say thank you to both of you. Thank you for all you do. I've learned a bunch from you guys. Been listening for a few years now, and when I first started listening, I tore back through the archives and learned a bunch, and have been listening ever since. Just um, thank you guys for sticking with it and teaching a lot of people a lot of stuff. So thanks. And before I get to my question, let me let me give you a little bit of background. I have a startup. It's called Closer Sharing. It's a sermon podcasting platform. So it's a podcasting platform specifically designed for churches, allows uh, the volunteers to quickly and easily use our recorder to record and tag and post the sermon each week and list it on their website and just takes the pain out of it, of hosting and getting it on their website and all that. We officially launched the product in January of 2017, so a little bit over a year and a half ago, and I have tried to grow it, and right now I currently have seven customers. We have an MRR of $200 a month. We really bootstrapped the thing building it, so we only have an outflow of $175 a month, so we are in the black. Of those seven customers, all are original. We ha- I have had no churn whatsoever, so everybody that's using it really likes it. Some have been on it the full year and a half and the latest sign up was a couple months ago. So there is no churn. So I I think it is a good product for the people who get on it. A trick is getting people on it. I have tried cold emailing. I've tried Facebook ads. I have tried conferences. Conferences, I tend to walk away from each one with one customer. I went to three of them. It really became obvious to me what mist- one of the mistakes I was making a couple podcasts ago when you were talking about SaaS marketing, and I have not been trying to really connect with people as and teach them anything. I've been just, as I've heard some people say, a- asking them to marry me on the first date sort of thing. I have a series of blog posts in my head that I feel like I should write and get out on my blog and start um, sending people to them and getting people to know me but um, I haven't done that yet probably my next project but I'm kind of well I'm a year and a half in I was listening to your last podcast about funding and some of that made me think as I've been thinking maybe I should just say hey it's been a year and a half I've only got seven customers maybe I should kill it and shift to something else but then again I have seven customers and I like them, and I'd like to continue to provide the service for them. But I don't want to be that guy that's just clinging to my startup just because I built it. I would like to know it's a viable product. I do have a whole list of features that could make this platform really great, but I don't want to keep building on it if it's not a viable product. So my question is, should I keep spending my nights and weekends on this thing have a full-time job and continue to grow it really slowly? Should I possibly look for some sort of funding so I could spend more time on it and possibly grow it quicker? Should I just kill it and walk away and work on another product and try to develop it into a business? I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on these things and I appreciate all you do. Thanks guys.
1: Tough question. Huh, Mike, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's a, a really tough question. Um, I do hear a couple of things in there in terms of like working on a, on the weekends and wanting to build features. I think that that's very natural for any developer to want to do because that's comfortable. But at the same time, I think I would go back and I would start looking at metrics in terms of how many people you're getting in front of and how many trials signups you're getting, how many actual signups you're getting. I don't know if there's a a free trial or anything like that, but those are the types of things that I would probably look at first and and see if there are like obvious places where like your sales funnel is just simply not working. So if you're not getting a thousand or two thousand unique a month, then that's probably the place to start and try and figure out how do I get more traffic? Because there's this whole funnel that has to be in place in order for you to be able to build a business. And that's, that's longer term stuff. I want to make sure that I I emphasize that there's a difference between that type of stuff and then shorter term stuff that you can do, which you'd, you'd mentioned that you have done some Facebook ads and some cold emails and things like that. But I don't know, as you really have much on the website in terms of what you're actually offering to people. I think the blog post sounds like a good idea in terms of, of education, but I'm, I'm not seeing a like a, a email newsletter sign-up list or anything like that on the website. So it's more of a come buy this product and there's not really much in terms of education about how the churches that would invest in this type of product will deliver better sermons or would engage more with their church members. And I think that's what you need to key in on is because that's what's going to be important to them the professional sound, like they're not going to care nearly about as much about that as you are. And so you have to ask yourself, like, what is it that's actually important to them? Like, how can they connect better with their members? How can they reach more of them? How can they be more convenient to them in a digital age where people don't necessarily need to show up at a certain time to see a movie and they can just stream it on demand? Like that's what you're trying to cater to. And that's one of the problems that they're probably having. So offer advice and solutions and different techniques and things like that in the form of educational material and try and build up like that early part of the sales funnel. And then I would actually absolutely try and contact them directly as opposed to just sending emails because those are very easy to ignore. Pick up the phone. I mean, it's probably not that difficult to reach them. I would imagine that most of their phone numbers are are available. And if you've got people at your cold email and you probably have a way to find out who they are and get a phone number for them and call them and ask them like just talk to them and say like what are your problems around this and around building a community cuz really it seems to me like that's what your product is trying to do and like how do you engage with them and like getting information directly out of their mouths is going to be very helpful and I wouldn't just call 5 or 10 I would call like 50 or 100 and put a line in the sand at some point in the future, like you asked about whether or not you kill it. What What is your line in the sand? Like how much more effort do you put into this and, you know, really put the pedal down to see what is going to work? How much effort can you justify putting into it? And then once you've hit that, like have you hit whatever your goals are or do you see a light at the end of the tunnel? In either of those cases, you can keep going. But if you get there and there's nothing else you can try or you, you can't think of anything else, I would kill it at that point.
0: Yeah, I feel like... This is such a tough market because churches don't tend to adopt, some churches adopt technology, but a lot of them do not, right? The older churches with uh, kind of the aging congregations are just unlikely to need podcasting. So you're dealing with such a small subset of the entire market you know, if you think about in the world, the number of people who, period, who listen to podcasts is very small. Like my mom and dad don't know how to do that, and so then if you just break that down into a subset, into a subset of like, okay, now it's churches, and now it's churches who have people maybe under age forty or age fifty who know who also know how to use podcasts. Those are the only ones that have any type of need for the service. So it's just it's a very small market, and it's a market where. Obviously, in conversations, I'm sure that, that he's learned that they are just not that interested in adopting it. So that's kind of the first problem. And the this, this second issue, Dan, is you have a top of funnel problem, it sounds like. I mean, if you had 1,000 or 10,000 unique visitors to your, your website each month, do you think you would convert them? I don't know, but generating those visitors is gonna be a re- really hard to do. And if you've been doing this for two years and only have seven customers, that's a bad sign, right? That's a sign that something's not resonating here. I think a big question I would ask myself is, are you tired of working on this? Are you done yet? Or are you still excited to, to you know invest time Not even do you still believe it can work, but are you excited to get up and think about this problem and try to do it? I would stop building features altogether, right? You shouldn't be coding anything, which doesn't sound like you are. And if your biggest problem is it sounds like might be driving traffic or maybe driving traffic hasn't worked at all and it's only been in-person conversations, in which case ask yourself, is a $29 a month product worth doing high-touch sales for, you know? Because for me, it's it's not. It's going to grow very slowly. You need $100, $200 a month, minimum, minimum to make, you know, that, that kind of approach work. I really don't think funding will fix this. This is not a problem of, I need money to scale or I need to put in more time to get to a point where this product is worthwhile. Seems like you have a worthwhile product already. You have a lot of cool features, more time to market, what would you do? You know, it sounds like you have tried a bunch of stuff. I mean, you haven't tried everything. Maybe you didn't try enough of it, didn't have the budget, but I'm kind of cautiously skeptical that if you had a hundred grand in your bank account tomorrow and you could go full time on this for let's just say nine months and had some budget for stuff, I don't see this taking off like a rocket ship based on how you've described it. I think my biggest kind of piece of advice that just given what you've said and looking at the website, it seems like a pretty cool tool in all honesty. You, you know, you have features like automatic intros and outros, professional sound without the work, automatic feeds. Is there another vertical that could use this? Is it even, should it be horizontal? You know, should it go across all, all verticals basically, you know? Should you not limit it to churches is is what I'm saying right now. You're marketing to churches. Is that too limiting? And is there either another vertical that would have so much more uptake on this or, just open it to everyone and then poof, you know, you become the how to start a podcast super fast service. And maybe, you know, people, maybe it even make it a little cheaper, but you you sign up for six months or a year at a time and you pay up front. I don't know if that's the direction, but that's where I'd be looking. Are there already services that do that? Because at that point, now you have, if you could get into that space, now you have affiliate potential because you have people who teach other people how to podcast so would they potentially refer you for an affiliate commission and that's a that's a bigger space you know it's people trying to start their own podcast uh, or could you go after businesses or startups or whatever again this is something i would either try to research do some customer development put some thinking into that because i feel like that's a space where there're more likely going to be folks who will actually adopt this and you know consider jumping on this on this train because it seems like you've built a decent piece of software at least from from the marketing side it looks Looks pretty interesting and, and has some features I haven't seen elsewhere. But I don't know the competitive landscape, so that's something that that's probably where I would where I would look at or shut it down. You know, I mean that's that's the other option that I see. I always hate to make a recommendation like that because th- I feel like the founder knows better than anyone else. Um, they often need a sanity check, and that's where having a mastermind would help, right? Of people who've been along on the journey. But to hear a four minute voicemail and then make a recommendation that you should shut your product down is tough, right? It's tough for me. to to say that, but definitely I think that's a more viable option than trying to scale this up in the church space or uh, raising the funding. And our last question of the day came from Twitter. It came from, I don't know if you pronounce his name, Chelso or Kelso. And he said, regarding episode 406, what is your definition of product market fit? And I started typing and then thought, there's always so much nuance to a question like this and Twitter is not the place to do this. This is either a blog post or it's a you know it's a conversation like this. And so I think product market fit is not a binary thing. I definitely think it's a continuum and I think you kind of ease into it. There is a nice measure that Sean Ellis created. It's this survey you can send out that says, how would you feel if you could no longer use this product? You know, insert product name here. And the four options are very disappointed, somewhat disappointed, not disappointed, it isn't really that useful, or NA, I don't really use the product, or I no longer use the product. And if you get more than 40% who say they would be very disappointed, that is how Sean Ellis has defined product market fit. So I think that would be the most common definition, and I have run this exact survey on some of my products. And I know Heaton Shaw has run this exact survey on not only his products, but a bunch of other products. Like he'll run it on, on Google Analytics. He'll just ask a bunch of people. And I don't know if he's uses mechanical Turk or how he does that, but like Google Analytics definitely has product market fit, at least according to his um, a slide deck and some talking he's done. We will link to SlideShare, this Heaton Shaw presentation, in the show notes so that you can take a look at, at the work he did. But that, I'll leave it, there Mike so you can weigh in and then I have additional thoughts and kind of my own personal thoughts of when I saw like drip what it looked and felt like before product market fit as we were getting there and then once we had it kind of from my perspective I I do want to weigh in but I don't want to sit here and, and monologue and not let you weigh in.
1: Sure. So I think my uh, (laughs) this is probably not going to be much different from some other people and what they would comment on it, but you'll know it when you see it. And uh, I know that's kind of a a hand wavy type of thing, but there's some people who will look at metrics. And so Sean Ellis has that product market fit survey. And if, you know, more than, I think he said that 40% I forget what the exact percentage was, but he said that if if more than certain percentage say that they are either somewhat disappointed or very disappointed that it would go away, then...
0: If 40% said they would be very disappointed if it went away, 40% or more, then by his definition, you have product market fit.
1: Right. So, like I said, that's a very—I'll say—exacting definition. I won't necessarily say that that's the only definition. It's kind of my view of it, and I—I I like the way Rob phrases. Like, there's a continuum of it, and that's why I say like, you'll know it when you see it because. If you're involved in the startup from beginning to end or wherever you're trying to figure out, like, have you gotten to product market fit? You'll know it when you see it because things will start to tick up and it will be obvious that you're on the right track. And because it's a continuum, you're never going to be like, I we have perfect market product market fit. Like things can always improve. They can always get better. And the market's always changing. Your product's always changing. Your marketing message is going to be always changing. So there's all these things that interact with one another that you'll never have this perfect product market fit. And even if you did, it's very likely that something is going to change and throw it out of whack in 18 seconds. So really what you have to do is like, if you don't have the data, if you haven't run a survey like this, you kind of have to go off of like a gut feeling. And my general view on it is that if you take the product and you put it in front of people who are in what you believe to be the correct target market, and they actually are, Do you win much more than you lose? Like, are those people going to sign up and say, Yes, I would like this, or No, we're just not interested? Because that will tell you one of two things. Either one, you're pointing at the wrong market, or your product isn't good enough, and it's just not doing what people need it to do. The second piece, which I didn't mention yet, is that those people have to actually stick around. So, You can explain to them, hey, this product will do X, Y, and Z for you, and it'll make all these problems go away. But if you don't also deliver on it, they're going to churn out. And you have to figure out ways to make them stick around. So those are two different competing things. And sometimes your things just to make them stick around are going to be more features. Sometimes it's educational or onboarding or something like that. And that's a slightly different problem than product market fit. Somebody may believe that they need a particular solution and they'll pay for it, but then they don't use it. Think of like any weight loss program on the planet, like people buy into that stuff and then they don't use it. Well, why don't they use it? Is it a product market fit problem or is it like a, you know, a customer retention problem? And that's a hard thing to figure out because, If they churn out, if they stop paying for it or they stop using it, then is it because other things got in the way or the product doesn't actually do what they needed it to do? So there's an attribution problem of why did they churn out? And if if it's because it wasn't actually a good product market fit and they bought into the messaging, but it didn't solve their problem, then you you don't have product market fit. If they churned out because they just don't have the chops or time or anything like that to actually do it, then that's a slightly different problem. That's a retention problem, not necessarily a product market fit problem.
0: Yeah. And that's where, I mean, this is why it's a good conversation to have because I think when I think about, I won't talk about weight loss stuff because I don't, I don't even know if product market fit applies to that in particular, but I mean, it It does, but I, I don't think about it in terms of that. When I think of a SaaS app, a retention problem is a product market fit problem, in my opinion. That if someone's not getting onboarded, not using it, then the need isn't deep enough and you haven't found that fit with the market. The, the question that I ask, the way I frame it in my head is, have you built something people or businesses need? That's the question that I've asked. I think Paul Graham says, have you built something people want? I think it's a great way to phrase it. But have you built something people or businesses need? Now, let's stick to businesses because we talk a lot about B2B SaaS here. If you built something people desperately need and they start using it, can you still fail or can you still grow slowly? Yes, I believe you can, even with product market fit, because if the market's too small and you top out That's one way, right? If your market's only 10 grand a month, then you can own the whole market and really just top out very quickly, right? Or if your market is huge, but you can't reach them in a scalable fashion, that's a whole different problem than product market fit. I think there's you know, being able to to build something that, that people need or businesses need. And then there's the ability to reach them in a scalable way and get them onboarded in a way that doesn't kind of break the bank. The the three questions I think about in order, the first one you have to ask is, is the problem, this before you've built anything, is the problem you're choosing to solve worth solving, i.e. is it much of a pain point for people? Okay, then you're going to start building it or you're going to start validating it, uh, customer development, even before you you build it. You need to find out, are people willing to pay for a solution to this problem, right? Then you propose the solution, and that's where you hit that very first milestone. It's problem-solution-fit. You've proposed a solution to a problem. Does anyone care? Is it worth building at all? Are people willing to pay for that? And then product-market fit is almost this, it's kind of a twisted question, or it's, it's a weird way to think about it, but it's like, have you solved that problem well? Have you solved it better than the alternatives, and does the problem, is the problem worth solving? Are people willing to pay for it? You can build a good product, but if you can't reach the people and get them to sign up, you're going to, you're going to really have a problem. And I almost feel like problem solution fit is one product market fit is the next. And then there's this one market marketing fit. And i have just made that up today because I was thinking, you know, that describes not being able like, you know, can you reach your market is almost the question there. You've built a product. I remember when drip started to scale up at first, it was like people were churning, churn was high, trial to conversion, rates were low. And then they just flipped and like trial to conversion went up, churn started plummeting. And we started growing very quickly, even with fewer trials than we'd had in previous months. That's when I knew we have product market fit, or at least I thought. And sure enough, I did that survey, the very disappointed thing. And we got, I remember thinking it was going to be really high because everyone was real drip is so great and everyone's switching and blah, blah, blah. And we got like 43, 46% somewhere in there. And I remember being disappointed by that. Because I thought, oh, man, I thought more people would be very disappointed. But as it turns out, it's really hard to get above 40. And that's why Sean Ellis sets the bar where it is.
1: I think one of the things that you explained probably a little bit better than I did, because I didn't actually put like a label on it, was that when I said if you put the product in front of people who are in the target market, basically that's bypassing the problem of the product market fit piece of it and trying to ascertain whether or not you have a problem solution fit. Because by doing that, you're making an assumption that you already have product market fit and you're able to get the right people there and if you don't have that if you if you get what you think are the right people and you put it in front of them and they don't buy then you probably do not have that product market fit so it's just kind of a a little subtle thing that i i guess i talked about there but i didn't really explain like that applied to the, the previous piece and you're just you're trying to avoid the whole marketing side of things and just say like are we actually solving the right problem for the people that we think need that so anyway, I think that that will about wrap us up. So, uh, Kelso, I hope that that was extremely helpful for you. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at StartupsForTheRestOfUs.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from we Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us on iTunes by searching for Startups and visit StartupsForTheRestOfUs.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.